We get it. You're busy. You don't have time to waste on the mainstream media. That's why Salem News Channel is here. We have hosts worth watching, actually discussing the topics that matter. Andrew Wilkow, Dinesh D'Souza, Brandon Tatum, and more. Open debate and free speech you won't find anywhere else. We're not like the other guys. We're Salem News Channel. Watch anytime on any screen for free 24-7 at snc.tv. And on Local Now, Channel 525. Most Americans have been paying close attention to the Iowa caucus, which don't worry, I'm going to do a show on. But over the past few days, there have been several significant geopolitical developments which we ought to pay attention to. Iran seized an oil tanker in the Gulf of Oman a few days ago. Taiwan elected a new president who has vowed to retain Taiwan's autonomy from China, which is likely going to cause retaliation from the CCP. Iran also launched a ballistic missile strike near the United States consulate in Iraq. And of course, Houthi rebels in Yemen continue to launch missiles and drones into the Red Sea, impelling U.S. retaliatory airstrikes and causing major oil U.S. suppliers like Shell to suspend their shipping there. When one looks at each of these developments, it's hard not to notice that they are pieces of a broader and sobering reality. That is, that forces for evil far outnumber the forces for good in the world right now. Here today to make sense of these foreign events is geopolitical analyst and, of course, our friend of the show, Brandon Weikert. I'm Julie Hartman, and this is Timeless. Hey, everyone, and welcome back to Timeless and to the Julie Hartman YouTube channel in general. You can catch Dennis and Julie every Monday on this channel at 1 o'clock Pacific and 4 o'clock Eastern. And then Timeless is every Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday at the same time. And, of course, you can listen to any of those shows on Apple and Spotify and wherever you get your podcasts. Brandon Weikert is a geopolitical analyst and a subject matter expert for the U.S. Department of the Air Force. He's written three books, all of which I have read, by the way, Winning Space, How America Remains a Superpower, Biohacked, China's Race to Control Life, and The Shadow War, Iran's Quest for Supremacy. He's also an energy analyst at the-pipeline.com, and he should also add to his bio that he is probably the most welcomed guest, <laughs> most uh, heavily appeared guest, I should say, because every guest here on the show is welcomed uh, because he appears on Timeless so much. Brandon, welcome back to your favorite stomping grounds. <laughs> well, thank you for having me. And that was a, a lovely intro. Uh, and thank you for uh, constantly having me. I, I, it's always such a joy. Eventually, I'll have to be in studio at one of these one of these occasions. I know we've got to get you out here. But, you know, whenever yeah. something crazy in the world happens and I need to make sense of it, I, I know who to call or who to summon <laughs> on Twitter to come to the show. Yeah. It's so funny. I bet other guests, if they're watching the show, are going, wait a minute. He's the most welcomed why are you giving all the <laughs> welcoming love to Brandon? But uh, well, you you and Spencer Clavin, I think, are neck and neck for, for being the most heavily like appeared. I, yes. I'm in good company then. <laughs> yes, you certainly are. So as you may know, Brandon, a few episodes ago, I did a 2024 predictions 
show, which is a little bold because, you know, I've, I've been advised to not really do that on the air because if it doesn't come true, you don't, you mm-hmm. don't look the smartest. But my whole argument is if it does come true, then you look like a genius. So I, I want to start off by telling you some of them and getting your grades on how well you think I may do in, in my predictions. And the reason I'm doing this, just so so everyone is, is aware that it's not a total non sequitur, is that I think that many of my predictions, almost all of them were geopolitical, are kind of um, greater pieces of the puzzle of some of the events that are happening now. I think some of these events that I just talked about that we're going to discuss tie into these predictions. So first, I argued that I think this year, or if not this year, then in the, the next two to three years, China is going to invade Taiwan. What's your grade for me on that? I think that's, uh, at this point, a fait accompli. Um, but, um, you know, we could talk about this a little bit later. Um, I, I still would not be surprised if the other kind of black swan event is if one day Xi Jinping wakes up soon and he's surrounded by a cadre of uh, rival faction that's removing him from power because they're so angry at the way that he has mishandled the domestic situation in China and gone after his rivals so heavy-handedly. God, that that is so interesting. And I remember you would know the the name of this uh, this leader, but I remember it, it, I think it was the former president of China was Hu sitting. Jintao. Yes, was sitting yes. in the uh, the twentieth uh, party congress back in October mm-hmm. of twenty twenty two, and all of a sudden, yeah. all these people come in swarm him and take him out Mm -hmm. very publicly and you're envisioning that perhaps a similar thing could happen to Xi there has been for about two years now a internal multi-sided fight between at least two other major factions Uh, the former president Zhang Jimin uh, who was before Hu Jintao, he's dead now, um, and I think he might have been murdered, but he was old, so we can't, we don't really know. But he was leading one faction, the Shanghai clique, and then Hu Jintao was leading another anti-Xi Jinping faction. I want to think, I think it was called the Youth League faction, which is funny because they're all old. Um, but um, those are the two major rival factions. And then there's within the military, um, a host of military leaders who are very unhappy with Xi Jinping because he keeps removing all of their friends uh, from their positions under the imprimatur of uh, anti-corruption. But what it really is, is Xi's just replacing them with loyalists to Xi. And so at some point, there's going to be a back... I mean, there already is a backlash within the party. But at some point, that backlash may grow into something even more significant that, you know, he could wake up and instead of ordering the invasion of Taiwan like he wants to, he might suddenly be getting uh, thrown to the curb by uh, the, the rival faction within the CCP. But wouldn't the rival faction want to also invade Taiwan and restore the Certainly. motherland, as they, they often say? Certainly. Yes, but it could also be one of those things where they remove him and their plans for invasion have to be delayed because there's too much internal chaos Mm. uh, for them to do an invasion reliably. But I do believe your prediction is very apt about a possible Taiwan invasion scenario. I think the last time I was on your show, I said something similar as well, that I thought it was going to happen before uh, the close of 2023. Thankfully, I was wrong. I'm very happy to be wrong. I always say that. Um, (laughs) But I think you're onto something when you say that, hey, this this could be something that happens in the next year. Uh, I would be watching uh, probably April 
uh, is when the win- next window is springtime uh, in terms of the, the weather uh, that would allow for a cross-strait invasion. Um, the Chinese already have a sizable uh, uh, amphibious landing fleet. Uh, the mil- U.S. military and intelligence networks don't acknowledge this because I, they don't understand it. But they look at it and say China's amphibious uh, fleet is smaller than our own. They need considerably more uh, vessels to do a successful landing. I always tell them the Chinese, under their military civil fusion uh, program, they have developed their roll-on, roll-off civilian ferries that are designed to ferry uh, large numbers of people and vehicles from one city to another. Um, They've designed them to be military-grade. And they have a huge fleet. They have the world's largest fleet of civilian row-row ferries that could easily be repurposed into amphibious landing vessels for an invasion of Taiwan. So you are absolutely probably correct that this could happen within the next eight months to a year. Well, some of the reasons that I gave were that you know, China knows that it has a limited window to do this. Certainly, right, I'm, exactly. I'm, I'm referring to, while President Biden is in office, I've even heard many liberals say that if they were, you know, the head of China, they would, if they were Xi Jinping, they would, uh, you know, invade while Joe Biden is in office because he has shown, he's demonstrated, as yeah. we've talked about, especially with the, you know, withdrawal from Afghanistan, that he is not the most uh, keen on foreign policy. Uh, and he's bought off yeah. by China. But it, but other reasons I gave yeah. were that, that, you know, China, as you know, is experiencing a great demographic decline. They're supposed to lose half of their population in, in the next yeah. few decades because of the effects of the one-child policy. They're also encountering you know, economic instability. A lot of the factories, such as Apple, which were operating at high speed in China, are, are finding you know, uh, alternative places. Obviously, Xi Jinping's zero-COVID policy was a total disaster. So I like your kind of uh, additional prediction that maybe Xi will have a, have a moment. Do you think that it would yeah. be too... Uh, too much of wishful thinking to hope that it would be a uh, a uh, Yeltsin replacing Gorbachev yeah. kind of moment. No, it's it's not going to happen like yeah. that. And in fact, in in Russia, we keep hearing as well. The, you know, the Twitter, the 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 FAFO types on Twitter, they're uh, always hashtag Putin is dying or overthrow Putin. And it's just like that. I say no, because I mean, Putin's terrible, but what will come after him will be more effective and nastier than even Putin. And I think the same thing would happen in China. I think the next group that would replace Xi might want to kind of cool tensions in the near term with with America and the West. But that would just be to buy them time to set up for the inevitable invasion of Taiwan. Um, And under that scenario, it would still happen within the next three to five years, I believe. Um, Precisely because of what you said with those demographic issues. You know, China has a lot of internal problems that they don't advertise. Um, And um, so you're absolutely correct to say that the window of opportunity is closing. In fact, similar reason for why uh, Russia invaded Ukraine when they did. Mm. There were a lot of internal considerations because they too have a demographic collapse. They too knew that this this was really the last chance, the 2020s, for them to do a major military push beyond their borders. And similarly as well with Iran. Iran is currently going through a demographic collapse. They have a lot of instability at home. That regime is, all these regimes are basically in a use it or lose it mentality 
reality. And what greater opportunity than to have Sleepy Joe in the White House, who apparently can't even stop uh, Venezuela from threatening neighboring Guyana. So how is he going to stop, you know, Iran or Russia or China from threatening their neighbors? And he not only won't stop them, he'll, in the case of Iran, give them $16 billion to to help them with their causes. That's right. And in addition to Sleepy Joe, we now live in a time where Sleepy Joe and, you know, the party in power has all of their, you know, woke, anti-American, pro, anti-Western accomplices helping them out. Yes, which is why you can have an insurrection on the White House grounds at last weekend. Yes. Uh, consisting of pro-Palestine movement where they're chanting for Yemen to destroy American forces. And, and somehow that's not called an insurrection. Um, but January 6th was, as terrible as January 6th was, it was nothing like what those people were doing on the White House grounds. Um, but but you now have examples of the Democratic Party aligning with anti-American interests. And, um, you know, the the red-green access, the communist red meeting the green wave of the Islamists, they're working together. They have shared interests now. This is one reason why Biden is so afraid to really hit back at Iran and its proxies in the Middle East, even as they're provoking us, because not only is he wanting to make peace with Iran and accommodate them like Neville Chamberlain did with Hitler, and we know where that ends, but he's also, Biden is also worried about losing the um, uh, Arab or Muslim American vote. And while they're not certainly a majority of the population, they are overwhelmingly democratic. And actually, before October 7th attacks in Israel, many Muslim Americans were starting to look to the Republican Party over cultural issues. Um, And that, of course, has gone to the back burner as the Israeli issue has become front and center. Uh, And so Biden is desperate to keep those voters by appealing basically to their shall I say, anti-Semitic views, uh, which many, many, as we're seeing, uh, unfortunately, in the Muslim community here in America, clearly are. uh, They have sympathies, at least, with anti-Semites. Speaking of uh, the situation in Israel, one of the other predictions I gave in my 2024 show, which, by the way, when I was uh, introducing it, I advised uh, my audience to get a glass of Chardonnay because I said, (laughs) all of these are kind of terrible. uh, one of them, I think, was that was that no one would really care about or watch the 2024 Olympics in Paris. That was like the the least uh, bad news one. That was just kind of neutral. But uh, as with the 2024 predictions conversation, maybe people listening should find their their glass of wine now because this is boy, this is bleak already. Uh, but let's let's shift and talk about the the Israel situation because one of my predictions was that another war would erupt in that region, whether it be, you know, between Israel and Iran, uh, Hezbollah opening a northern front, perhaps the United States going to war with Iran over their activity in the Red Sea. What's your grade for Julie Hartman on that? Um, I would say that generally, I'd say that these both your Taiwan and your fear of a wider Middle East war, I give them an A minus or an A. I think they're they're pretty much spot on. And in fact, this is something that I happen to believe as well. And you can make the argument, and indeed I have, um, you can make the argument that um, what we're witnessing in the Red Sea is uh, an expansion. What we're witnessing in Iraq with uh, Iranian missiles being fired at the U.S. consulate, um, we're, we're already witnessing the the expansion of the war. Um, and, uh, you know, we're already in now a, the beginnings of a regional war in the Middle East, which will absolutely go global, um, you know, any minute. 
And so I think your prediction again is is spot on. Um, you know, predictions are funny, as Yogi Berra said, even especially about the future. Um, but I think that you seem to be on the right track here. And the very interesting thing about predictions, at least in the business I used to work in, um, what interested me was less the conclusion and more the methodology um, that brought an analyst or an individual to that conclusion. Um, and I think that knowing you, uh, that the, the work that you've done researching uh, and understanding this topic, I think leads me to say there's a lot of credibility to your uh, predictive capabilities. And so I would definitely score you high and uh, say that I hope you're wrong. I know. <laughs> I love that line. It's so true. I should have prefaced my episode with that. I, I hope I'm wrong. I, I really do. But yeah. uh, I, I don't know if I am. So, okay, N now that we've gone through that, let's, let's look at some of these uh, individual geopolitical developments. And, you know, as we've talked about, and as I've sort of hinted at in the introduction, I think that all of these are pieces of a greater puzzle. And I, I see the hand of China in a lot of these developments. Certainly, you know, the Taiwan development is kind of a separate entity onto its mm -hmm. own because I don't think China would want to support the, the, the president who was just elected. But I, as you know, wrote an article in the Epic Times and for the American Mind arguing that China and its accomplice Russia were likely uh, involved and by involved, I mean at the very least knew about it and perhaps even endorsed it and helped uh, the October 7th massacre. And I gave all of these examples of uh, the way that China, Russia, and Iran, alongside other countries, are really coming together to try to create an alternative, vehemently anti-Western world order, yes. whether it's the Shanghai Cooperation Initiative, which is kind of a geopolitical alliance, or the BRICS Alliance, which is that group of of um, uh, 11 or so countries that, that form an economic alliance. They just, China just hosted the Belt and Road Initiative where they invited all of these countries in the world except the United States and the Western Bloc. So I, I think all of these, again, are perhaps more interrelated than might meet the eye. So let's, let's go in. Let's start first with Taiwan. So Taiwan just elected this new president, Lai Ching-ti, who is the current vice president of the ruling Demo Democratic Progressive Party. And in his acceptance speech, he said that this is a defining moment for Taiwan. I just want to read quickly uh, some, some other things he said. Quote, the election has shown the world the commitment of the Taiwanese people to democracy, which I hope China can understand. He went on to say that he views it as an important, quote, responsibility to maintain peace and stability in the Taiwan Strait. And then he said, quote, at the same time, we're also determined to safeguard Taiwan from continuing threats and intimidation from China. So it's clear where he stands. How do you analyze this development as far as China, Taiwan and China Western relations? Well, I think it's very clear where the majority um, of the Taiwanese people stand. It's a uh, very interesting development than how it was even 10 years ago, where there was a genuine, pretty even split between 
the DPP types that wanted independence and to operate basically as an independent country from China and the uh, Guomindang um, party, the KMT, um, which wanted to be enmeshed with China, at least economically. But we, you and I know that that's a backdoor way for them in China to get their hands back on Taiwan. Um, but now there, there's clearly now both with the election of the previous president, uh, who was a member of the DPP, and now the election of uh, the, the current president, President Lai, um, is a decisive majority of Taiwanese people who are saying, we don't want war with China, but we don't want to be a part of China. And uh, we want to operate as an independent dem- democracy. And that is precisely what they're doing now. Um, and so I, obviously this is unwelcome development in Beijing. Um, but uh, I think that it shows you decisively where the Taiwanese are moving. And the real question is, A, what will China do ultimately in response? And B, what will the United States and the West do um, if China decides, as you predicted, uh, to use military force? And that that answer is very frightening. Um, if anything, from a sort of a logistical, practical standpoint, we have blown through most of our critical supplies uh, that Taiwan would need to facilitate their defense from China. We've blown through them in Ukraine, and we're starting to blow through them now in the Middle East, and our industrial base is not that strong. And so even if we had a leadership that really wanted to help defend Taiwan, um, we would not probably have the requisite um, equipment on hand to do that reliably. And so how would we react? And, And the Chinese are calculating that we would not be able or willing to react to a sudden attack by China. Um, that they would be able to gain a foothold on the island. And once they did, that would force the Americans to sue for peace um, so that they could incorporate Taiwan, which does not want to be incorporated clearly uh, into the, uh, the the greater Chinese empire. Mm. How interesting what you just said that the KMT party wants to be kind of closer with China because in 1949 when Chiang Kai-shek and the KMT lost the Chinese Civil War when the CCP won, they fled to Taiwan and set up their own country. So I would think of them as the probably most uh, you know, vociferous opponents of the Chinese, but apparently not. Why did that change? Yeah, well that's partly because of the generation. Um, Remember Chiang Kai-shek who founded Taiwan and the and the the KMT um, initially viewed his government in Taiwan as the only legitimate government of China, um, and for about twenty or thirty years after Taiwan kind of became uh, uh, an independent fortress from Mao's China, um, the 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 Taiwanese government never said we're separate but equal from China. They said that we are the only legitimate government of both Taiwan and China. That changed, I think, in the the 60s. um, And now it's really evolved into the Taiwanese are saying we don't want war. We just want to be left alone and be our own entity. Um, And it's the Chinese who are saying, well, you can manage your affairs uh, at home, uh, you know, internally, but like Hong Kong uh, or Macau, but uh, you are in fact part of the greater Chinese, uh, you know, co-prosperity sphere. The, the, it was time, it was sort of culture and generational shift that led, and a lot of corruption that led to the KMT becoming the pro-China um, uh, or at least being opposed to fighting 
for Taiwan's independence uh, with China. That 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 is really the the kind of shift here that occurred. Um, a lot of graft and a lot of time uh, forced the two parties to sort or the 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 KMT party to sort of change its outlook. Um, and it was very popular that position they took for many years in Taiwan. Uh, particularly in the early 2000s. But now that China has grown to the point that it has and it is exerting the kind of um, you know influence it is in the near abroad of Taiwan, they are realizing that they are being boxed out and that they might not, if they don't resist, uh, they might not have a choice and be absorbed into the new Chinese empire. So this democracy that they are displaying is one form of resistance. Hmm. I get conflicted about this because on on the one hand, I think, okay, it, it is a form of resistance. It's good for Taiwan to elect a leader that is so strongly, you know, defensive of Taiwan's autonomy, and perhaps that will send China the message that they're not backing down. But then on the other hand, I think, oh, gosh, this is provocative for China. Mm. So it seems like you think it's going to go in the in the latter direction. In an ideal world, um, simply because of where um, the political moment is in America, it is not conducive to foreign entanglement. uh, And also because of, um, like I mentioned, our logistical crisis that is not being talked about enough. um, In an ideal world, we would have a president who was respected globally and feared in the capitals of our enemies uh, to the point that we could tell the Chinese we will continue to honor the the uh, one country, two systems uh, formulation of the Shanghai communique in 1979, um, where we will not openly call for Taiwan's independence, but we will, both of us, China and, and America, respect the idea that Taiwan is, in fact, independent in its operation. But unfortunately, because of the way our, our government is perceived right now um, around the world, led by, you know, let's face it, a blithering idiot, um, the Chinese do not fear us. They don't respect us. Um, and so they don't really care about whatever agreements they made with us 50 years ago. Um, they think now is the time with a weak American president in a divided America, now is the time for them to go for broke. Um, and that's exactly what they're going to do. Um, but in an ideal world, we would be able to tell the Chinese, if you don't do anything to Taiwan and you just let Taiwan be, uh, we will not openly call for Taiwanese independence, but we will still act as if it is an independent country, which is what we were doing for about 40 or 50 years. Um, but but now the Chinese do not want it that way. They don't trust us. They don't like us. We don't trust them, rightly so. And the Taiwanese are stuck in the middle. And so now this is why the prediction of a war happening very soon before the American election um, is, is at hand. Mm. Perhaps it'll be an October surprise, you know? I mean, <laughs> I, I remember the, bi- the biggest issue of the 2020 election, COVID, didn't happen until, until March. Maybe it'll be a March surprise. Right. So, Well, yeah. yeah. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, you know, the one aspect here I would I would tell people about. I said this yesterday. I was on with one of your colleagues uh, on Salem, uh, Seth Liebson's show in Phoenix, and he said something similar. And I I said, you know, the one aspect here that our enemies always 
kind of misunderstand is that which Winston Churchill said, which is that basically America is going to do all the wrong things before it ultimately is forced to do the right thing. And so we did all the wrong things for the last four years by electing Biden and letting him run everything into the ground. Now the American people, I think are waking up to the fact that they need something new and Trump might be what they need. And I would tell, I would say also our enemies are miscalculating because they are probably going to try to do something radical over the next year before the election. But that radical aggressive move that any one or all of these autocratic regimes may be doing might actually kind of become a self-fulfilling prophecy where Americans look and they see how America's getting pushed around on the world stage and they say, you know what, we may not like Trump, but we'd rather have the mad king to Mr. Magoo. And that might actually create sort of the disaster scenario for these regimes that are challenging us because the last thing they want really is Trump in office. And yet their crazy behavior over the last year and a half might actually prompt that reality, you know, into existence, which would be really bad for them in the long run. Mm-hmm. A final question on on this Taiwan election. Let's say that China, our, our predictions do come true, though we hope we're wrong, and China does invade Taiwan. The United States has pledged its commitment to defend Taiwan against China since the uh, Chiang Kai-shek coalition took over Taiwan in 1949. Do you think that we will defend Taiwan? Will we follow through on our commitment? And and what would you say to the many Americans who I think understandably wonder, well, what's in it for us? You know, we may have sympathy for the Taiwanese people. We we don't like China, but why would we send our troops or our equipment or our taxpayer money to go help this small country? Before we continue with Brandon, I want to quickly tell you about my pillow. I use a lot of my pillow products. I wear my slippers, I sleep on a my pillow, and I use my towels. And you can too if you use the promo code Hartman or call 1 800 566 6745. My pillow did not stop by creating the pillow. They also created the Giza Dream bed sheets. These look and feel great, which means an even better night's sleep for me, which is crucial for our overall health health, and especially for me as I am a terrible insomniac. Mike Lindell, founds the, Mike Lindell found the world's best cotton called Giza. It's ultra soft and breathable, but extremely durable. Mike's Giza sheets come with a 60-day money-back guarantee and a 10-year warranty. Those Giza Dream bed sheets come in a variety of sizes and colors, and Mike's incredible deal is the sale of the year. You'll get 50% off the Giza Dream sheets and you'll get a set for as low as $29.98. That's $29.98. If you go to MyPillow.com and click on the radio podcast square and use the promo code Hartman, there you will get not only this great offer, but also deep discounts on all MyPillow products, including the MyPillow 2.0 mattress topper, MyPillow kitchen towel sets, and now even flannel sheets and so much more. Call 1-800-566-6745 and use the promo code Hartman or go to MyPillow.com and make sure that you use the promo code Hartman. Do you think that we will defend Taiwan? Will we follow through on our commitment? And and what would you say to the many Americans who I think understandably wonder, well, what's in it for us? You know, we may have sympathy for the Taiwanese mm-hmm. people. We we don't like China. But why would we send our troops or our equipment or our taxpayer money to go help right. this small country? Right. 
Well, the first part of your question, I would say under present circumstances, no, the United States will not defend Taiwan. Um, the not at least not directly, indirectly, possibly. But again, that's running up against really logistical issues. Um, what will probably happen? That's if the Chinese don't attack U.S. assets. You know, that changes the game because the Chinese believe that they have to hit our satellite constellations, that they have to basically initiate a massive cyber war, that they have to launch missiles at our air bases in the region. You know, that could really change the dynamic. But if the Chinese keep it very honed into Taiwan and kind of leaving the West out of it, um, if it's up to the United States, we will not defend Taiwan. Um, I was talking what, three years ago now with a very dear friend of mine who was a very senior person at the State Department. Um, and we were chatting about this very scenario. Um, and his comment to me was basically, we wouldn't intervene directly, but we would be using submarines to covertly deploy uh, weapons into the t Taiwan under the the noses of the invading Chinese. We would be using submarines to, uh, you know, covertly infiltrate U.S. special forces and intelligence operators to basically do sort of, uh, you know, behind the wire um, operations. But of course, that that is those are harassing actions, and that's not going to be sufficient to roll back a Chinese invasion. Um, and so I don't believe under present circumstances, the United States would actually act in a decisive manner. At least that's what the Chinese are assuming. Maybe I'm hopefully wrong. Um, what I would tell people who are rightly skeptical uh, of getting involved, you know, it will be a disaster, a war with China for for both sides. Um, and this was sort of the conclusion of um, uh, there was a book called 2034 by Admiral Stavridis uh, and another person. I can't remember who wrote it, but that was sort of their conclusion. It was a fictional uh, world war between the United States and China in 2034. And the conclusion was basically both sides annihilate each other, a lot like World War One, where everybody kind of knocked each other out. Um, but what I will say is the reason that the United States and the American people, the ordinary voter, should be worried about a Chinese takeover of Taiwan is because China wants to acquire what's known as the first, second and third island chains. And Taiwan mm. is the beating heart of the first island chain. And if they can capture Taiwan from Taiwan, they'll be able to basically force the Philippines probably to accommodate Chinese ambitions. And then they will also be able to turn north and harass the heck out of Japan, uh, possibly even blockade Japan uh, and uh, basically force them to kowtow to Beijing. Once they do that, they will be able to extend their power, their naval power primarily, into the second island chain um, and be able to reach down into Australia. And finally, the third island chain, which includes Hawaii, they will be able to press into and basically deny the United States a military access to the Indo-Pacific, but also be able to basically cut the United States off of trans-Pacific uh, trade, which most of our international trade flows across those trans-Pacific waterways. And the U.S. Navy has secured those for 70 or 80 years now uh, without any question. Now, if China is able to break out of the containment that we've had them in with Taiwan and move into those second and third island chains, you're talking about the end of America's dominant position in the world, the rise of China. And once China solidifies its grip on that third island chain, 
chain, uh, they'll be able to then really dive deep and go into Latin America, not just economically, but militarily as well. And then they'll be all up in our business um, the way they think we've been in theirs for the last 60 years. And it will not be a pretty time for us, especially with our lack of border control uh, under under current conditions. Cheerful. <laughs> yes. Very yes. cheerful. Well, I, I was talking to you before the show about a eerie line from Nostradamus about the red enemy <laughs> uh, c- coming in and taking over. And perhaps he was he, he deserves the reputation for for being uh, for being a prophet. I, I just before we move on from this, I remember I used to listen to people like you who would talk about the the march of China and I would think oh my gosh this is so you know mm-hmm. this is so outlandish but this is mm-hmm. what they're doing now I mean we're yeah. seeing it they go and I talk about this ad nauseum on this show they go into other countries and they buy those leaders off and they buy, they they ha- you know, under the pretenses of helping those countries, hey, I'll build you a railroad, I'll build you schools, I'll mm-hmm. industrialize your airport. They put their claws mm-hmm. in and then control those countries. So right. that, that's the thing I, I want people to understand is that this is right before our eyes. And China is spying on right. us and infiltrating our country right before our eyes. And we are so jaded that we allow them to do right. it. We don't care they sent over the spy balloon. We don't care that they're buying farmland. We don't care that they're spying on us with TikTok. We don't care that they bought off our leaders. We don't care that they have a spy base on Cuba. Right. We're, they're, they're doing it in front of us. So the people who cry conspiracy theories need to just open their eyes. Right. That's well, my sermon. Yeah. The former the former head of the Bin Laden unit at CIA, I, I was on his podcast and it was after we we, we finished chatting. I um I I basically said to him, I don't want to sound like a conspiracy theorist, but he said, no, no, you don't sound like a conspiracy theorist. You sound like somebody who can read the room. Yeah. And he said, you yeah. know, the, you know, that, that we're, we're beyond, we're beyond conspiracy theories now. Uh, and we're now in the, in the period of actual conspiracies. It's not a theory anymore. Um, and one of those theories and one of those conspiracies is this great coordination uh, between uh, China, Russia, Iran, and uh, even Venezuela and countries like Turkey, um, which are and North Korea, which are all predicated on uh, basically, uh, you know, displacing American power and and pushing us out from all these different parts of the world, isolating us and making us basically on the defensive, losing ground everywhere. Uh, that's what they want. And that's what they're they're executing now an agenda. And you see this at play everywhere. And in China, the big push for them will be to take those island chains. And the American people need to understand that if Taiwan falls, that that's an open highway, basically, for China to go right up to Hawaii and to basically, you know, really start, um, you know, taking apart the American led world order. And at that point, that's when you'll start seeing the rise of the this BRICS economic yeah. Uh, alliance that's designed to take out the dollar. You'll really start seeing the end, not only of the American order, but you'll see really the sort of the diminishing of America into a second or third rate power and certainly a third world country in terms of lack of prosperity. God. Again, cheerful, so cheerful. But it can change. But but yes. I want to make it clear, yes. you know, the, what I keep, this is sort of the, 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 the drum I'm beating for the next year and it's going to be very annoying uh, for people, but, but the, the off ramp, there's one off ramp left, and that's the November election. And if it is a free and fair election, I believe that Trump will win 
And I think that people will hold their noses. I know he's very unpopular with sort of independence and whatnot, but there's going to be four states that determine this election. And really, it's going to come down to about 150,000 people, I think. Um, and I think that they will break for Trump because they don't like what they're seeing. And if we can put Trump in for another four years, and as long as he picks the right people this time, I think we can avoid these nightmare scenarios. I think all of the autocrats will stand down and bide their time because they're too afraid of Trump. Um, they're not afraid of Mr. Magoo. They're not afraid of Joe Biden. But they are afraid of Donald Trump because he is the Mad King. And that sort of madness is what we need right now on the world stage. And then at home, he can reverse almost all of this economic decline within a year. I mean, look at what he was able to do after COVID when he started rebuilding the economy. Look at what he did after he took over for Obama. They said what he achieved couldn't be achieved. Obama said this in 2015. A year and a half after that, Trump's been the president, and he, he made this economy the best economy since the 1960s. So this guy knows what he's doing, as crazy and unstable as he may be to some people. If we can get him in office for another four years, I think we will see a, a reversal of all of these nightmares that are coming true right now under Biden. Let's pray. <laughs> <laughs> I do every pray. day. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to, but I'm not always the best at it. So let's shift now to a different, but as I often say, related development, because mm -hmm. China is everywhere. Its hand is everywhere, <laughs> right in front of us, very obviously. Let's mm -hmm. talk about Iran seizing this oil tanker in the Gulf of Oman. And again, I want to ask the question for for people who are going, okay, yep, we know we don't like Iran. We know Iran is funding anti-American, anti-Israel activity. It's funding terrorism. But, okay, they seize one oil tanker in this gulf that most people can't even pinpoint on a map. What's the big deal? What is the big deal, Brandon? Well, all of so this is why I tell people the Middle East is, you know, it's like the Godfather three Al Pacino. Every time I think I'm out, they keep bringing me back in. <laughs> um, and so that's sort of America in the Middle East, because I'm the first one to say I've had friends who've been killed over there. I, 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 I be the first one to say that I want us out of the Middle East as best as possible. But we're never going to be fully out of the Middle East. And look at that map there. Um, that is one of the most heavily trafficked world trade routes. Um, and whether America is there or not, the world will still depend on these waterways cutting through the Middle East. So it's not just oil and natural gas. It's also these waterways. They're called oil choke transit choke points. And there's about seven or eight of them in the world. And I think three of them, four of them maybe, are in the Middle East. And um, one of them cuts right through Iran, the Strait of Hormuz. You've got the Strait of Bab al-Mandeb, which is off the coast of Yemen. Um, you've got you know these this, some of these waterways like the Gulf of Oman. All of these are used pretty heavily by the world. And the reason they're used is because it cuts down on travel time for goods going between Asia and Europe and the rest of the world. And what the Iranians have done with their Houthi proxies... Um, they have managed to basically force most world shipping to reroute around the Horn of Africa, adding weeks and possibly months onto the journey of goods, which only means increases in prices on you and I. At the same time, the instability of the Middle East has jacked up the cost of oil. Oil is already expensive right now under Joe Biden, thanks to his idiotic regulations. 
Now we have the added influx of not only war in Ukraine, which is spiking the price of uh, certain commodities and, and agricultural goods, uh, but it's now also the war in the Middle East is spike, spiking the price of oil. And so now you have this, this issue where this is going to affect for a long time until this crisis abates, this is going to affect the, the wallets of ordinary Americans at a time when most ordinary Americans are struggling to get by in Joe Biden's economy. And so that's why we should want to nip this crisis in the bud. We do not have to go to war with Iran to end this thing. What we need to do is blast the heck out of Houthi, the Houthis in Yemen. Tell Hezbollah, if you guys open up a northern front, we're going to use our air power to clip your wings. Uh, you've got a lot of supply chains coming out of Iran through Iraq and Syria into Lebanon, which is where Hezbollah is based. If you guys open up a northern front, we will let the Israelis attack you in Lebanon, and then we'll hit your supply chains coming out of Iran, and you guys won't be able to wage war because you won't have the stuff to do it. And then what we need to do also is we need to tell the Saudis, we need to use our leverage over the Saudis and the Arabs to say we need to complete the Trump-era Abraham Accords. We need to unite uh, the Sunni Arab world with Israel to contain Iran in the same way that we created NATO to contain the Soviet Union uh, in the Cold War. And I think we're almost there. And what they're looking for in that region is for the superpower to actually display strength and competence. And under Biden, we have displayed weakness and incompetence. And that is the worst possible way to appear to that region. Um, so we would need to have a change of leadership to be able to do what I'm saying. But we can get there. Um, and we can stop this because once you stop the the, the targeting of shipping, um, it'll help with our prices at home. And that's why it's important to, to worry about what goes on uh, in these waterways. I was not alive or even close to being alive during the 1973 OPEC embargo. But so I understand it was a very, uh, very bad event with with long lines and absurdly high, you know, gas prices. And it's just interesting to reflect, especially people my age, we don't even conceive that something like that could happen to us. Like, because we've never lived through anything like that. But this is one of their weapons. You know, we, we were talking yes. about China's weapon against us is, you know, spying. A lot of countries' weapon against us is the border. Certainly, m many other, you know, powers are, are funding or uh, trying to, you know, push this homegrown anti American wokeism. But another huge, mm -hmm. huge weapon that we should not underestimate mm -hmm. is our reliance on oil. President Biden and treated to the Saudis and treated to the Venezuelans because uh, apparently it's uh, okay t for them to drill and send it to us, but it's bad for climate right. change if we drill here. Right. So we have to remember this is such a thing that they have over us. Yes, yes. Well, I would also remind your audience that they actually, and this is I wrote about in my book, The Shadow War, and my, I finished writing that in May of 2021. Um, it was released finally in July of 23, but that was because we had edits and everything we were doing behind the scenes. But um, and then Hurricane Ian hit my house and I couldn't focus on the edits. I had to worry about fixing our house. But mm. um, my point is, is that I brought up in that book what Iran was doing during the Trump years, where they were attacking uh, Saudi oil refineries like Abcake. They were going after shipping. And that ended within a year and a half because Trump basically killed their leaders. 
Uh, he started killing top Iranians. Obviously, he got General Qasim Soleimani, who was the biggest one that he got of the Iranian cadre. Um, and the Iranians were afraid. They were afraid that Trump was going to keep clipping all of their leaders. Uh, and basically, they didn't want to die. And so they stood down and they waited him out. And now they have a more pliant uh, person in the White House, somebody who actually wants to to you know work with the head choppers in Iran rather than kill them. Um, and they are now doing the same tactics again, only the, this time the tactics are immensely more successful because the White House isn't pushing back. They don't fear the White House. That's something your audience may not know. You know, we made a big show of blowing up the Houthis in Yemen after weeks of not doing anything to all of their aggression. Um, what people don't know is that something like 70% of the Houthis' assets that were targeted in those airstrikes did not get destroyed. And that's because Joe Biden on the eve of the attacks, called the leaders of the Houthis and told them where we were going to strike and and when we were going to strike. And the Houthis then basically spent that whole time moving most of their assets and key personnel out of the way of our bombs. Why did did he do that? Well, because there's a Democrat mentality when it comes to using force they like to be able to say that it was precise and surgical and they minimized for uh, casualties and all this they, they like to put on a show um, they like to pretend like they're tough without actually risking you know collateral damage or anything like that um, and also I think it's just incompetence but Bill Clinton was famous for this now I wasn't alive in 1973 either but I was alive in the 90s and while the <laughs> 90s were a wonderful time to be alive the foreign policy of Bill Clinton was not that great and one of the things he used to do with Al Qaeda in the 90s was he would sort of telegraph what he was going to do to them he would delay 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 and then he'd you know fire one cruise missile uh, you know basically target picking uh, you know everything into the last minute giving the Al-Qaeda types time to escape which is why Al-Qaeda became the threat it became because we were paying all this attention to them and then we're seen as ineffective when going after them it's the same thing with Iran today Obama did this to a lesser extent as well. But Biden is really carrying on the Bill Clinton legacy of, um, you know, basically putting on a big show without actually accomplishing anything. Um, And this is a huge failure of his foreign policy. So to quickly synopsize the implications of the Iran or Iranian backed events, Iran seizing the oil tanker in the Red Sea and then the Iranian backed Houthi rebels firing missiles and drones into the Red Sea to destroy, you know, vessels carrying commercial items and oil that is intended to diminish American power to seize or at least try to control that area to have leverage over shipping routes and to potentially curb our access to oil because they know that we are beholden to them for that very important resource. Is that fair? Yes. And this yes. And this is all being done with a geopolitical end in sight. The Iranians are desperate to weaken our standing permanently in the region so that they can rise to the top of the food chain of the region with the backing of Russia and China. Um, and this is another reason why Iran is attacking our allies like Israel and the Saudi uh, Saudi government, uh, because they're trying to weaken our reach. 
And all of this is part of not only a geopolitical ambition, which on paper, obviously it's awful, but it's very logical. That's what makes sense why they're doing this. But this is also married to a very, I think, personally irrational religious view, a 12er Shiite view, which is that the Iranian government must create as much chaos in the world in order to free their Mahdi, their Messiah, from his hiding spot that he's been in for five 500 plus years and once they can create enough chaos the Mahdi will come smite the unbelievers and then elevate the Iranians to being the kings of the the new heaven on earth because as they are the true believers and so you have that rational geopolitical ambition which is a threat to us married to an utterly irrational eschatological uh, vision of basically bringing about the apocalypse uh, so that their Mahdi can come save us and I will add one other thing since we're talking astrology um their description of their messiah is the exact same description that the christians have for their antichrist so if we're looking at this in religious terms even this is a very scary moment and that's why i say it is not ukraine it is not taiwan that's going to trigger a third world war it's iran in the middle east hmm so so help me understand because this is totally new to me. Where is where do they believe this person is? I know you just said it but but I missed it. Yeah. So it's the 12th Imam and basically and and I talk about this really in the book the history of it. Basically when Muhammad died in the 7th century there was a secession crisis. Uh, who would rule the caliphate? Right. And uh, the Sunnis said it has to be the next leader has to be chosen by basically the wisest of all Sunni Muslim of all Muslim scholars. And the Shiites said, no, the Muhammad is divine. His bloodline is therefore divine. The Fatimid and it should be caliphate. A, yes, exactly. So then that led to the Sunni Shiite split. The Shiites being a minority in the Sunni dominated Middle East found themselves basically living under, uh, I want to say it was, the, I think at this point, the um, Abbasid dynasty based out of Iraq. And they uh, Abbasids were holding the 11th Imam of uh, sort of like their pope in Shia Islam was holding their religious leader prisoner. And the rumor is, and they, they killed him, but the rumor is that before the 11th Imam died, he had a child, the 12th Imam, who is the Messiah. He's the, the promised one in the Shiite view of Islam and that he will basically, uh, you know, bring justice and balance to the Islamic world and, and destroy the apostate Sunnis and elevate the Shiites to their rightful place. And what happened was, uh, because he was never found, this 12th Imam, the, the Shiites came up with this kind of myth that he is in a divine hiding. He's in occlusion, waiting for the signal of chaos in the rest of the world that would have him free himself and come like an avenging superhero to save the Shiites in their moment of chaos. Hmm. Cheerful. <laughs> That's what you're dealing with, though. I know. No, and and that is and that is really important for for us to understand because to our western minds the the commitment that many of these individuals all of these individuals have to yes. their religion is is completely inconceivable to us. Yes. I mean they they view yes. the the world in a dramatically different way right. and that has everything to do with the decisions they make. When they call us Satan, they're not just saying that because for a shorthand. Yes, There's, yes. It's not, they're not saying it the way that liberals call us Nazis on the right. They're right. saying it because, like, 
they actually believe we are possessed by demons and they must vanquish us in a new crusade. That is what you're dealing with. And that is why Obama and Biden and Carter before them were so wrong in trying to negotiate with such a regime because you will never get a fair deal from them under any circumstances. You can only kill that regime. How big of a deal is the is the Iranian ballistic missile strike near the U.S. consulate in Iraq? Well, it's certainly a signal. A, they're not afraid uh, because of the reason that we have a horrible president. Um, And B, um, I've been telling people, you know, there's all these reports about I think it was Pompeo was saying uh, he was at Hudson Institute recently saying that, oh, well, you know, they're going to get nukes now. And I keep telling people you don't understand the Iranians already have rudimentary nukes. That's mm. not the issue. The issue is, can they take those nuclear warheads and A, make them more sophisticated, which the Obama-Biden nuclear deal would allow for them to do that legally. And the real issue, though, is those ballistic missiles. They have been perfecting them. They have been making them able to hit farther targets. They now, with their space program, and yes, Iran has a space program, are placing satellites in orbit that will allow for them to have greater over-the-horizon command and control capabilities, therefore expanding and extending their reach with their weapon systems beyond the Middle East even and into farther places. Um, And so the ballistic missile attack, I think, is a portent of things to come. And I think it's a very scary indicator of just how sophisticated uh, the Iranian ballistic missile and nuclear weapons program has become. And that's even under sanctions. Biden wants to remove most of the sanctions and integrate Iran into the wider community of nations, allowing them to have normal, normalized trade relations and all of that, which means that that will speed up their advances in ballistic missile and nuclear weapons technology bigly. Mm. All of these developments that we've been talking about, as you just said, are indicative of things to come. Iran seizing the oil tanker in the Gulf of Oman, launching the ballistic missile strike near the U.S. consulate in Iraq, funding the Houthis and sending the missiles and drones into the Red Sea, and then Taiwan's new president. It's it's important, I think, to understand these developments along the way because they may not seem like the, the biggest of deals compared to all of the other craziness that is happening, but they're laying the groundwork. I, I would also watch out for North Korea. I think there's going to be a oh, twin yes. crisis soon in the Indo-Pacific where China's threatening Taiwan and North Korea is doing something to South Korea. I would keep an eye on the Venezuelan Guiana issue. Um, I mean, that could create the biggest refugee flow coming up through our southwestern border in history. And I would be watching the Russia-Ukraine war Zelensky is now suing for peace. He should have done this after he won the fight for Kiev a year and a half ago. Now he's negotiating from a position of weakness. Uh, I predict that Russia will take eastern Ukraine and Crimea and whatever's left of Ukraine will basically be a pre-failed state beholden to the West, completely unable to function as a normal state. Um, So we are entering a very, very tragic period of human history again. Well, I hope that you have a great rest of your day, at least. (laughs) (laughs) Have a glass of scotch. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Well, (laughs) thank you very much for coming on and and for for making sense of all of this. And as you say, 
it can be reversed. Sometimes I just wonder, like, why is it that hard? You know, I, I mean, I understand that that we I mean, we could talk about Trump all day, but I understand he is his own worst enemy. He says despicable things. There are things that he does that all of us hate. But my gosh, we're in a civilizational moment. Is it that hard right. to understand yeah. that and go with the strong candidate? We are a decadent people, and we have not known in our lifetimes the kinds of hardships that my grandparents and great-grandparents did. And so, yes, yes we can. Look at Rome. Good Look point. at all of the decadence. They, so, yes. The question is, though, if we can get it right, we get another lease on life. If we get this one wrong in November, or if it's stolen, um, that's it. Republic's gone. We're something else, and we are not a great power anymore. We are a declining power in a Chinese-led world. Brandon, thanks for coming on. And everybody needs thanks to follow Brandon on Twitter. You're so funny on Twitter <laughs> at, at We I the Brandon. <laughs> and as a reminder, please do order any of Brandon's books. I've read all three. They're fantastic. Winning Space, How America Remains a Superpower, Biohacked, China's Race to Control Life, and The Shadow War, Iran's Quest for Supremacy. Fortunately for uh, buying purposes, but unfortunately for our civilization, as I often say, they are now more relevant than ever. And I hope that you will write to me at julie at julie-hartman.com. I always love hearing from you, and I'll see you soon. Take care. Take <laughs> care.